Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. episode 72 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and yet another special episode. Uh, Dan and I are pleased to be joined by Ed Grasset and Christopher Willis of Grasset Legal, who are the proud owners of a win before the Illinois Supreme Court in Thomas versus Corey. Um, this uh, is a case we covered on episode 15, and we're joined by Ed and Christopher on episode 16 to discuss this matter in which um, it's a medical malpractice case. And I'll just kick it to them and let them remind the listeners, if you didn't remind or, or inform the listeners as to what the underlying facts of this case are before we get into the law, the arguments, and the decision, which was uh, drew a very lengthy dissent from Justice Garmin uh, that was issued a couple of weeks ago. So uh, Ed, Christopher, I'll let you guys tell us about the underlying facts of this case and what's at issue. All right, I will do that. And, and Pat and Dan, thanks for having us again. I, I do want to say before we get into the facts that uh, I'm glad at the time of our, our first uh, podcast with you, you were undefeated in your predictions surely to go wrong. You've missed a couple since then, but you guys both got this one correct. So congrats on that. Well, I, um, I, I, we, we, we got it. We got it. Yes, we got it correct. But you got a lot more correct, so. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So just basic facts I'll cover again. I know you guys covered it a little bit on, on an episode a couple days ago as you reviewed the uh, uh, the opinion. But basic facts is Monique uh, and Chris, uh, Monique was going in for an elective surgery. And uh, when she got to the hospital for the surgery, there was routine pregnancy tests done. First, there was the urine dip came back positive, a second urine dip came back positive. Um, they then uh, had her do a blood test, which also came back positive. And uh, they then sent her for an ultrasound. The ultrasound report came back saying essentially that it was inconclusive. Uh, and it might just be that the fetus was too young to be seen on the ultrasound. Uh, both Dr. Corey and Dr. Kagan, uh, one is the surgeon, one is the anesthesiologist, uh, both have in their handwritten notes of the the events of that day that she was negative for pregnancy. They told her she was not pregnant and said, we can proceed with the surgery, which they did. Um, after the surgery, she ended up getting an infection, went to see uh, one of her physicians. And at that point, they said, you are, in fact, pregnant and were pregnant at the time of the surgery. Um, so at that point, they, she was informed that the damage to the fetus from the surgery, the anesthesia, all of the medications that were given post-surgery, that the fetus had zero chance of survival and suggested that, uh, recommended that she abort the fetus, which in the end she did uh, at the recommendations of her physicians. Um, after that, uh, then is when we, we brought this lawsuit, including a wrongful death count on behalf of the fetus. And that was 
four years ago, I believe. <laughs> and now here we are still at the pleading stage. Um, but at least we have a, a lot more direction. So um, that's generally the facts. If you'd like more on that, I, I know we've covered it before, so I don't want to go too long. Yeah, one, one question. I think we may have covered it uh, briefly when we chatted with you on episode 16, but uh, you mentioned that they noted that the test was negative. Um, is, is that common if the urine and other tests come back positive, but the ultrasound is negative? Or is, was that something that, is there any evidence that that's kind of inconsistent with normal practice or procedure for the doctors? Uh, truthfully, on this one, I don't want to comment on that at this point because we haven't gotten sure. into the, the discovery on that point. And, you know, we've never deposed or talked to the the ultrasound technician. All we have is the written report that says it was inconclusive, possibly too young to see in an ultrasound. Um, so I, th I think it's probably a little too early to comment on, on that from our perspective. Fair enough. Fair enough. So what happened you uh, at the trial court? Well, let's just give a quick recap of the, you know, we're at the third stage here. At the trial court level, quick on what the appellate court did. So we kind of set up what the legal issues were that were presented to the Supreme Court. Christopher, can you tell us about those? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having us back. As Ed said, it's good to be back with you guys. Um, the history of this case is interesting, especially knowing the way that it ultimately was resolved at the Illinois Supreme Court, because the legislative history was something that was teed up very early in the case. Um, we brought a, a claim for wrongful death. There was a, a motion to dismiss. Um, and we, you know, brought it again and, and repled it. Um, and there was substantial argument about that at the time. And um, in this is in the circuit court of Cook County, our trial judge um, was Judge Ehrlich. And at one point um, when there was hearing on this, um, he handed across a handwritten note that said, you know, here's some legislative history citations that I found. I'd like the parties to brief this. I'd like the parties to see what the legislative history saw. Um, uh, credit to Judge Ehrlich for seeing that, you know, years in advance, because as you see the conversation between Justice Burke's majority opinion and Justice Garmon's uh, dissent is very much on kind of parsing out who, what was said by whom, when, and, and what they meant or what they didn't mean at that time. Um, so based on that, uh, there was lots of argument and briefing and a lot of these uh, arguments that we ultimately see in the Supreme Court were shaping up at the trial court level. The At the trial court level, Justice Ehrlich, or excuse me, Judge Ehrlich um, denied the motion to dismiss, but then did certify the question. Um, saying and it was that, a question he drafted, right? Yes, he there was some, exactly. There was, you know, he took input from the parties on whether or not that was appropriately drafted, but he drafted that question um, and said, this is how I see the issue and, you know, framed it at that time. So you guys, you guys went up to the appellate court as the appellee. That is correct. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. That's absolutely and right. And so yeah. you go up to the appellate. So this gets to the Supreme Court on this same 308 question that was certified by Judge Ehrlich. Is, is that right? That's right. Or, yeah. They, they never frame people. So they people keep right. in mind what the what the procedural posture is. So they understand what this what 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 was being asked of the Supreme Court. Um, and you guys prevailed in the appellate court. That's right. right. Yep. Is that That's right. Yep. Yeah. And so I the think question really deals with whether a. 
go ahead. No, I was going to say this is probably a good time to just just go through the the three paragraphs in the section two point two that lead yeah. to the certified question uh, at issue. Well, before we before we do that, let's see if we can get. I want to get the question um, in in front of us so we can you know so po folks can know kind of frame what the question was, and then we can talk about section two point two. Uh, section 2.2 of the statute. So the quest certified question is whether, quote, whether Section 2.2 of the Wrongful Death Act bars a cause of action against a defendant for fetal death if the defendant knew or had medical reason to know of the pregnancy and the alleged malpractice resulted in a non-viable fetus that died as a result of a lawful abortion with requisite consent. So as, as Ed, you mentioned, this was very early on in the pregnancy. When she has the elective surgery, she has to make the decision that uh, to to have uh, have the pregnancy terminated because of the the death, the substantial injury to the to the child. And so now you have a situation where can you sue the doctors who had two positive pregnancy tests and an inconclusive uh, or alleged and an inconclusive um, ultrasound? And as you as you said, you've alleged. They then told her that she was not pregnant and that she could proceed with this elective procedure. So, Ed, why don't we pick up from there with what the um, statute says so that we can get an idea, so we can kind of see what ground we're fighting about. Because I think the purpose of the statute is to protect doctors from being sued for performing abortions. I mean, that's the purpose, it seems, of the statute. Um, if the statute's passed, I think in the mid seventies or so, if I remember correctly, early eighties, early eighties. So, okay. So it's, it's designed, to right. It's designed to protect one, doctors right. from being sued for abortions, which, at, you know, which are legal. So how do you do that? Um, right, so let's actually, let's do this. We're about 10 minutes in. Let's take our first break and we'll come back and we'll answer that quiet. We'll talk about that. Okay. Segment two of episode 72 of the Podium and Panel podcast, picking up on the three paragraphs of section 2.2 of the of Illinois' Wrongful Death Act. Ed, take it away. All right. So Judge Ehrlich's question takes in little pieces of the three paragraphs in section 2.2. And that's what I think becomes very important in looking at the Supreme Court's opinion. So section 2.2 is a, a, a change to the Wrongful Death Act that was enacted in 1981. And the first paragraph simply says that the age of gestation of the fetus will not uh, be a factor in any way in determining whether or not a wrongful death act exists or a cause of action exists. Uh, the, the stated reason for that is after Roe versus Wade, there were all these questions of, of viability. When is viability? And the Illinois legislature said, we are not going to have that discussion with regards to these causes of action. So the age of gestation is irrelevant. If, you, if there is a fetus, potential wrongful death act case arises at the time of essentially conception. Um, then paragraphs two and three were added by the House after the Senate had approved paragraph one. And paragraphs two and three are exceptions, essentially. Paragraph two is an exception that says if, if there's an abortion that is uh, lawfully conducted with the requisite consent, then there's no cause of action against a, the physician or a physician. And paragraph three says there is no cause of action against the doctor if they had no reason to know or medical reason to know of the fact that the mother was pregnant. 
at the time of, of any alleged action that they took. So when, uh, when Judge Ehrlich is looking at this question on the motion to dismiss, we allege that the doctors knew that she was pregnant and had reason to know that she was pregnant because they had positive tests that said she was pregnant. And these were on a motion to dismiss. So keep in mind, everybody's got to take and take as true the allegations of the complaint. That's why we keep referring to what, you know, Ed and Christopher alleged on behalf of their clients. That has to be taken as true at this stage of the proceedings, whether it turns out to be, that's a different kettle of fish. Sorry. Go ahead. There was a a previous decision that judge Ehrlich was looking at, which is light versus uh, uh, light versus power, I believe. Um, Proctor. It gets overturned. Proctor. <laughs> <Light> <laughs> versus Proctor. Um, and, and that case only looked at paragraph two, and it was an auto accident case, not a case against the physician. Um, I'm sorry, that's Williams. The light case was against the physician, but there was no allegation that the doctors knew of anything, knew that she was pregnant or anything of that nature. So uh, the light case essentially came out and said the abortion is... Uh, essentially a a, a be-all, end-all question as to whether or not you can sue the physician. But they never looked at paragraph three in any way. And so what we argued is that by looking at paragraph three, which talked about the knowledge of the doctor uh, that the the woman was pregnant, that it puts us into paragraph three, or at least puts a combination of those two paragraphs in play to see which uh, how that would play out in, and what we had asked Judge Ehrlich to do is just let us get to a jury on this question. And so when you look at his question that he posed, he's tying in aspects of paragraph three that the doctors knew of the, of the, the pregnancy with the fact that it's also a lawful abortion with requisite consent. So all of those things come together to, to eventually, you know, the appellate court agreed with us. Uh, and, and Judge Ehrlich, and then the Supreme Court looked at it, and interestingly, um, their position on this is is one that we really couldn't take. <laughs> uh, it, it's and it's a, a weird part of how the argument had played out in the entire case. <laughs> Excuse me. Is the appellate the Supreme Court has the ability to overrule light? Right, no other court had the ability to do that. Judge Ehrlich is bound by it. The first district doesn't have to agree with it. But they they can't overrule it. There wasn't so a as, contrary. There wasn't a contrary first district because light is from the third district, correct. And there wasn't a contrary third district, a first district opinion. And as we've talked about before, Illinois has one appellate court. And right. if you're if you're if there's a conflict between the districts, the trial judge has to follow the court, the district in which he sits. But if there isn't one in his district, he has to follow whatever controlling precedent there is. And if there's a conflict and the the trial judge sits in another district that doesn't have an opinion. He gets to choose. So this was a circumstance where Judge Ehrlich was stuck. He had to yeah, follow right. light. The appellate court didn't have to follow it, and the Supreme Court really didn't have to follow it and didn't. Yep. Continue. I'm sorry, fellas. Just want to make sure we're framing these issues. Yeah, I think, and that's a probably a good point, Chris. Why you can talk then about how the, the Supreme Court then handled the, the light case and, and the overall decision. It's interesting as Ed and I, you know, obviously the first time we read the decision, we were very excited because we knew the outcome. Um, And then the more that we've spent time with the decision and going through it, it's interesting to see, you know, a decision that you're very happy about and to see arguments that you made showing up in the dissent. 
um, por portions of Justice Garment's dissent are, are parts that we argued, which was that uh, from our position, you could you could resolve this case without overruling light. Um, Justice Burke and the majority decided not to do that. They decided to go in a different position. Uh, and we don't have any insight as to why that is. Um, but I think one thing that you can look at and see is the majority opinion in this is noticeably shorter than the dissent. Um, and Way then, shorter. Yeah, <laughs> it's by a factor of two to one, if not more. Um, yeah, not more. And and I think is is much more straightforward. It's a very um, linear, logical uh, majority opinion that just kind of goes through the steps. And one thing of note is that the way that they decide this, the majority opinion never talks about the third paragraph of the section two point two. That only gets brought up in the in the dissent. It's it's never breached. And the way that they do that is because they ultimately come to the conclusion that Light's discussion of section two point two could not be saved, that it was incorrect and that it needed to be overruled um, to the extent that it's interpreting that. And that's how they get to what we think is a, a correct decision, but a straightforward decision, which is that light was not correct. This is not what they meant when they wrote this statute. Um, and that, you know, we're gonna provide some clarity both for this case and for other litigants by saying, you know, that this statute was intended to protect the physicians who are performing the abortions and reading it any other way yeah. um, creates absurd results that that we just can't square or can't believe that the legislature intended. So speaking to of the majority, absurd like results. you said, Christopher, in paragraph 17 and 18, they make that very clear, right? That the second paragraph protects the physician who performs the abortion. Nothing said about or in the legislative history about anything about other uh, uh, physicians. And as you know, the, in paragraph 18, they talk about the Light vs. Proctor case and that the defendants had pointed to that. And, and uh, like you said, they went in a different direction. And, and as we've talked about in this show, sometimes we don't have any insights as to why uh, courts of review take positions they take, you know. What's, I want to change gears building on that and, and kind of as a framing device as the argument develops between or developed between the majority and the dissent and the majority cites this truck driving example and you know and tries to it tries to give an illustration of the absurd result that would be reached if the dissent's position prevailed so why don't we talk about if ed you could tell us about this example that the majority uses and then after the break let's come back and talk about the dissent's response to that because i think that it gives a good illustration of really where the differences are between the, the, the majority uh, and, and the dissent. All right, so in, in this case, the majority opinion talked about a situation where a, a uh, driver of a truck gets into a car accident with, say it's my client, Monique. She gets into an auto accident with a truck driver. And in the end, the fetus is injured so badly that it, it needs to be aborted and the end result of that is that it's a it's a lawful abortion with requisite consent, and the abortion has to be uh, undertaken because of the injury to the fetus. It cannot live to term, and it, it could impact the, the health of the mother. And then in that situation, the majority says that the truck driver has no ability to take advantage of Section 2.2, and that wrongful death cause of action against the that truck driver is a viable cause of action. And, and, and use the word viable. Let's say also, this is, let's suppose that this fetus was non-viable, that when the truck right. driver gets into the accident, let's suppose the woman was six weeks pregnant. 
you know, something like that or, right. or less. Even. So plainly a non-viable fetus. This is a situation where that 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 that, that uh, truck driver would be on the hook for the wrongful death, assuming he was you know negligent and you know uh, would be on the hook for the wrongful death of that non-viable fetus. So then, as you say, the 2.2 is designed to protect doctors, not truck drivers. Right. And I think it's interesting to note there, Pat, that in terms of this hypothetical, as far as we've gotten this far, that point everyone agrees on. The defendants and their arguments agreed. The dissent, uh, Justice Garment's dissent agrees. Everyone agrees that that is the case. That is settled Illinois law um, as everyone has interpreted this statute, that that truck driver, with one possible caveat that I'll mention shortly, well, that well, truck yeah, driver... Well, let's Let's mention that after the break. Let's take the break and come back where the disagreement creates. That gives us a good point to stop. Let's stop right there. We'll be right back. Segment three of the Podium and Panel Podcast, episode 72, and I'm dominating the conversation, and I apologize. So not really. So with that, I'm going to kick it back to Chris. Finish your thought on where the dissent and the majority disagree on this truck driver example. So in the truck driver example, uh, Justice Garmin's dissent, it's a great place to look at the dissent because it's the place where the dissent is most directly in conversation with the majority opinion. And Justice Garmin's dissent talks about this example and agrees that the outcome would be different. As I was saying, everyone agrees that the outcome would be different if it was a truck driver as opposed to um, a medical negligence claim against a physician. And Justice Garmin says that that's okay, that um, the legislature often... Um, imposes a different standard of care, different duties when it comes to physicians, that physicians are different from truck drivers. Um, The majority takes a different opinion and says that that is, um, as they say, makes little sense um, and that it would be illogical um, to have the outcome be so radically different in something where, you know, it, it just depends on, you know, was it a truck driver and a, and a car accident versus was it, um, you know, medical negligence against a physician where ultimately in either instance, you know, the, the one of the ultimate cause and facts of the death of the fetus is an, a lawfully performed abortion with consent. Um, but the status or the the licensing of the person, whether they have a CDL versus an MD, is going to determine whether or not you have um, a wrongful death claim. What I think is most interesting about this is that um, you know, the majority opinion doesn't get into this, but there's this question um, out there that under Justice Garman's framework, where he says, you know, it it does matter if you're um, if you're a physician versus whether or not you're a truck driver. Justice Garman makes clear that her view is that Section 2.2 protects any physician. That's her phrase, any physician. And it seems clear to me that under the language that she uses, if the truck driver has an MD, then the truck driver is scot-free for this right. uh, because he's any physician and he's not the person who performed the abortion. Even if and- what he did was bad driving, not bad medicine. Exactly. Right. Because if you look in Section 2.2, it talks about any cause of action, uh, any wrongful death action. It does not talk about medical negligence. It doesn't talk about, um, you know, violations of medical standards of care. Um, It talks about any cause of action. And Justice Garman uh, interprets that to mean that it applies to any physician, not not physicians involved with the actual abortion itself. Um, so you get into these instances where if you draw these out to other hypotheticals, you can get to some very, um, very interesting outcomes. If you were, if you are to follow Justice Garman's logic, 
uh, to its conclusion and, and take her at at her word. Um, that it seems she, like a slippery slope because again, you can come up with examples where a spouse, for example, and, and you know, punches punches the spouse, but he's an MD in the stomach, or does other things that causes her to have to abort. And again, that would be it. It, it would be a, a strict. Uh, it'd be unqualified immunity for for these types of situations in those cases. Apropos yeah. of the apropos of the title of episode sixteen, an absolute immunity for doctors? Question mark. Right. And it turns out not. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but that's exactly what the defendants argued. I mean, they were they were directly posed that question in both the appellate court and the Supreme Court. Are you saying this is an absolute for any physician? That they are, if just because there's an abortion, it doesn't matter what happened before. And the defense had to, they had to answer yes to that question. In and, both and, cases. and and Karen DeGrand, to her credit, yeah. uh, you know, she answered the question the only logical way she could. Uh, right, she did. Grant is 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 a frequent flyer as 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 an appellate lawyer, in particular in uh, medical negligence cases uh, for defendants, and you know she represented them in, in this particular matter. Uh, at the appellate court level in the Supreme Court, and you know she had to answer the question the only way she could, and yeah. did. Um, but it, it does. It, 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 you know, if you if you read the legislative history, that's you know the 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 majority in dissent has again. It, it's it would seems like a stretch that that would be what the intent of the legislative body would be, right? To to take it that far. But in any event, as Pat said, that she she was advocating that she the only way she could. And Justice Garmin in her dissent, I, I did find this a little interesting. I, I went back and looked at the legislative history because when I read her dissent, she makes reference to a, a comment by Senator Nupple. And uh, the, I, I didn't remember when I when I read it exactly when that came out. Um, but the legislative history on this is, as I said earlier, the first paragraph was the, the only thing that was originally introduced. The other the two paragraphs came as amendments. The, when I went back and looked at the legislative history where she pulled the quote from Senator Nupple was when the only thing at issue was paragraph one. That's when he made that comment and that she's quoted in her dissent. The, the, the after paragraphs two and three have come in as the exceptions that are at issue in this case, the, the, the quote from Senator Nupple is not part of that. Uh, discussion in any way, so I don't. I'm, it's it's interesting that she brought that out to make the point that uh, that paragraph two always said exactly what she thinks it says when that comment came out before paragraph two even existed. This is a common complaint of of uh, legislative history by by justices, including the Supreme Court of the United States. You look at a case like Heller. This is that you can interpret and. Again, to your point, Ed, you, you kind of take snippets that might not be relevant to the context or to the actual what was actually legislated. And often it's hard, right? You know, like the Constitution itself, the, you know, very, very not, not copious notes and not exact. So it's hard to, it does make it, that's an interesting point, I think, that she, she relied on that piece that, that was not with the amendments that, that are at issue here. One of the first things that Ed and I both said when we read this decision is that this decision is a gold mine for my wife, because uh, I don't know if we mentioned it on the prior podcast, my wife uh, is a professor of uh, 
advanced legal research at Northwestern University, and she had um, Ed and I on to do a podcast specifically for her students about how legislative history comes up in in practice for practitioners yeah. um, talking about this case. And it was recorded before this decision came out, but after our arguments at the Supreme Court. Um, and it's a goldmine because it shows, it, I mean, the, the majority and the dissent both go in and you, you show that, you know, things can be taken out of context and people aren't always clear when they're making a statement. Are they referring to all the paragraphs? Are they referring to one paragraph? And as Ed noted, you know, you have to pay attention. What was the statute? What, what was the language that was being proposed at the time that the statement was made, especially for something like this, that bounced between the chambers a couple of times. Um, so it, it, it is an interesting statute. It's interesting the way that it came to be and evolved and what different people were saying at different times about what they understood it to mean and then to see how that ultimately plays out um, 40 years later. Literally, we're, we're 40 years removed from those discussions when this decision comes out. Um, and, you know, both Justice Burke and Justice Garman are forcefully quoting from from that history and saying, you know, clearly both have strong convictions that they believe that um, the the legislative history supports their position so the yeah the, one of the weaknesses of legislative history and you hear this sometimes in the uh uh in the united states supreme court because it'll be very clear justice gorsuch for example i recall saying you know you've given an, uh, an argument about uh, legislative history council let's suppose we don't i don't care about that so much why can't what textual or you know historical uh, evidence can you give me because i'm not going to put much stock in that uh suppose i or so he, he does it a little more delicately suppose i don't suppose one doesn't take much stock in that uh and i think part of the reason why is because that's what one out of in illinois case one out of 158 people thought about a thing um, and now it may have been a leader, it may have been a, the drafter, but it's still one out of 158 plus the governor who had to sign it. So one out of 159. And, you know, and, and, so, and, you, and you don't know what influence it actually had just because exactly. it's in the legislative record, you know, uh, uh, on Capitol Hill, people go to on C-SPAN all the time in the empty chamber and they create a legislative record that, you know, may not have diddly to do with the passage of, of the bills. The room, that, yeah, that the, the chamber was show. vacant. The, Nancy the chamber Pelosi, was vacant. You have to pass the bill the... to see what's in it. Okay, well, there's probably legislative history, but nobody knows, might not even know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> the chamber was vacant except for the sergeant of arms and the and the, and the the uh, the person sitting in the speaker's chair at the time. Uh, and that doesn't tell us much. So let's, we're, we're getting close to our time here. Let's, so where do we go from here? Uh, the mandate, I, I suspect, hasn't issued yet, but yeah. will shortly, I imagine. And you'll go back to in front of Judge Ehrlich and uh, they'll answer the complaint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the next step. We'll, you know, when the mandate comes back down, we'll, we'll uh, you know, all, all we wanted was our chance to, to fight this issue in front of a jury. That's all we've been asking for ever since the beginning. Um, and uh, that's that's where we're going to be at now. You know, four years removed from filing the lawsuit, we're going to be at the hopefully at issue soon, <laughs> and can proceed into discovery and anything else that needs to be looked at in the case. Well, that'll be framed. You know, the pleadings have meaning. Uh, there's a case. Don't feel so bad. There's a case that I was involved in that just came back down from the appellate court for the fourth time, and after 11 years, the court has finally said defendant you need to answer the complaint now that's after they've whittled down from like six defendants 
two, one, but in the course of those four appeals, but they finally said, and now's the time for you to, you, you got to answer the complaint now enough of this. Uh, so the, there are worse places to be vis-a-vis um, uh, -vis, uh, a defendant answering a complaint. So we'll see what happens here. Uh, did, I, I don't think they gave instructions on the remand, but it may come with the mandate uh, as to what, they, what Judge Ehrlich is supposed to tell them to do. But I imagine that an answer is, is in the future. Um, and that discovery from there. So We'll see. Well, we fellas, see. thank you very much for joining us. And again, congratulations on your victory. And uh, we'll keep an eye as things go on, because I think this is, this is not the last I imagine we'll hear of this case. A very interesting and important decision from the court. What's your record now before we go? I'm we're, pretty sure uh, we're something like 89. Well, we, while we were here, the Seventh Circuit issued a decision in Gibson versus Lovelace. So there's one more, uh, one more that we just got to add. So I think Dan has 90. He's like 90 and 15, and I'm 89 now and 16 or something like that. So yeah. we have to update some things. We, we split on one case. We split on one case. So we have. We've split on a second one, but that decision hasn't come down yet, so I still have a chance to catch up and we'll get even again, but uh, I may also find seven, myself further behind. We have seven disagreements where, where, where we can't make heads or tails, so there's seven uh, no decisions like ties in the NHL. Yeah, exactly. So where we, and Or where we've punted. We just said we just can't, or where the decision doesn't really, it's split in such a fractured way, you really can't even tell. So we've kind of we're very liberal with giving ourselves the punt. So right. uh, um, black box does its job, and uh, exactly. we did punt. We punted on a case on Sunday because we could not figure out what, what in the hell is going to happen. So no, we cannot. We so well, it's your podcast, and you don't have any sponsors yet. So you know, you guys can That's do whatever right. you want. There we go. <laughs> Thanks a lot, fellas. We really appreciate Thanks, you joining us. Hope you have a great holiday, and uh, we'll and keep us updated on what goes on with the case. Thank, Thank you very much, holidays. you guys as well. Thanks, fellas. Yeah, happy Bye -bye. holidays. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.